Um, let's start. I, I know Jeannie and, and Carla got to leave, and I want to try to get in as much of this poem as we can. And um, I'm going to step outside of what we ordinarily do, because you know that often I just want to leave a lyric to settle on you and do its work. But the poem we're reading tonight is a section from Auden's poem. We've, we've already started it. Um, it, it has the length of T.S. Eliot's quartets. Um, we've done it to get the quartets together, so you know the difficulties of reading something like Eliot's quartets. I, I think this, <clears throat> sorry, this poem really belongs with the quartets in some way. It, 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 I'm going to wait on it. I, anyway, I want to get going because what I would like to do is go over it slowly and take some time with you and treat it like a text. So we're actually talking more about the poem. If you haven't printed off a copy and you can do that while we're going here, um, I would suggest doing it because it would I think it would help to have a copy. But I would like to give that some time um, because of the light it, it sheds on our discussions last week, particularly on Law and Mercy and the difficulties that we face, each, each of us. Um, it, it speaks so directly to that and also to the violence that's going on in our world. Um, and it goes directly to Barbara's um, concern last week. So I, I want to get going here. So let's so, say a prayer. Can I ask one favor? This is Sue. I can see nothing. You fixed it somehow last week. Sue, I, honestly, I, I don't know. All I can say is look at the options. If you hit the camera. No, I can't, I can't do it. It's got to be, I mean, I can't hit my camera. I, I hit it, but it doesn't go on. I, I, don't, I, can't, I, I can't help, Sue. I, honestly, okay. I just... All right, I'm just going to sign off then. Thank oh, you. don't, don't, don't. But, Sue, listen. No, I, no I, it's not good for me to do it this way. I tried it one whole week and it didn't... Can anybody work. help her, Sue? Can anybody help, Sue? I mean, I can push the video button all night long, but it's not... You fixed it last week somehow, and I don't know what happened. I, I don't either. Got to, I, okay. I'll be so sorry to lose you. I, I think it's worth hearing because this is an amazing poem. Um, I wish I could do something. I don't know what to say. Okay. Wait, hold on. Just. Um, uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. Uh oh. I may have lost all of you guys. Oh no. Oh no. Oh no. God bless it. God bless it. God bless. <clears throat> I don't even know what to do now. Yeah, might have. Yeah, he may have I, can't, I can't tell what we lost, because I can't see anybody anyway. Um, yeah, I don't know either. Okay, we're back. Can you guys hear me? Yeah. And I can see you. You can see me. So, Sue, I wish I could help. And I really would just urge you to stay, even if it's difficult, because I, what we're doing tonight, I think you'll find pretty amazing. I, I just wish I could help. I don't know what to do. Before you give up, press your right, right button on the screen and see if there's a taskbar that shows up at the bottom that 
and you can. I don't add, have a right button. I don't know. I, I have a on Mac. A, on so a, I the equivalent on on a mouse or on the or on your your uh, your. You have a laptop or? I'm on an iPad that I'm always on, and it's a Mac. Uh huh. An Apple. Okay. So I don't have a right-left click. I don't have a mouse. I see. Yeah, you don't have a, you don't have the right click. I don't see how you can get to this uh, this thing. What are you I, talking about? I mean, I have stuff at the bottom that's video and audio and all of that stuff. You you do. Do you have a do you have a uh, like a, a couple showing? I mean, that you can get click on for uh, see participants. Uh no. You don't. Okay. No. Nope. That, that's that's the that's the key one that you'd have to have there. Okay. To, well, okay. Sue, can you give me give me a minute? Can you can you call Mike Doc? I'm gonna I'm gonna start. Sue, just hold on for I I don't know that it'll help, but let me see. We're gonna call Mike, and get him on the line. But let's say prayers and start. But give us a couple minutes just to see if he can help. Okay. Okay. Let's say prayers, and I'm gonna. Do you are you guys all on? Can you can you can you hear me? Yes. Okay. Okay, let's let's start. Um, and I'm going to get Mike on the phone, and I want to get the poem going. So, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for this gathering. Um, God, we're, we're here because of you. Just ask him if he can wait a second. We're here because of you. Um, be with us in spirit and all that we do. Um, you call us to a cross. Um, it's going to be very much to the point of everything we talk about tonight. Um, help us to find a strength in all that we do with each other. Um, there's a wisdom that you offer to our minds and our hearts. Help us to open our minds in understanding, to deepen our understanding. Um, for the importance that we've given in guiding us and strengthen our wills to give ourselves to you, even sometimes when we don't understand. So I ask a blessing on all that we do tonight. I ask a special blessing for um, our two sons, Christopher and Thomas. Christopher's carrying a, um, a huge burden. Um, um, be with everybody here in class with whatever burdens they're carrying. Um, help us um, to carry them, trusting in you. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Mike, can you hear me? Mike. It's gone, Doc. Mike. It's gone. Can you use our house phone? Sue, give it a minute. We're going to try, but let me... Let me um, uh, could I try to see if I can help Sue if she's on... Go ahead. Hold on just a second. Can you hear me? Mike. Can you hear me? We've got a woman who's had who's had trouble getting on visually. And we don't know what to do. She's on an Apple iPad. I have an iPad Pro updated to whatever. Some guys one of the one of the prisoners trying to help her, right? If you you see the center of your screen, very center. Wait. Yes. If you go down and look, think of center left to right, just above the bezel. If you tap or touch, does a another drop-down menu pull up? If I tap in the center of the screen? No, not the center of the screen. 
from the center goes directly down to the bottom of the screen. Okay. It will be from left and right, just above the bezel. I don't know, if I should I don't know what a bezel is. The bezel is the black frame around. Okay. All right. I just did. I, there's a line there, and I just tapped it, and it went on and off, but nothing happened. It went, a line went on and off? You mean a line of menu selections? No, there's a there's a bunch of menus and stuff down there. Mike, I, I should just ask you, she's having trouble getting on. She had trouble, and something me, happened Mike. last week to get her on. To get, um, Why don't you call she's me on audio, but she's not on video. Right, right. Yeah. right. What, do you want to try or should just leave it or what? It's an Apple iPad. It's an iPad Pro. She needs to press the little button that looks like a camera. I think she's done that. He, he it doesn't can, do anything. Yeah. It did, it's, you heard, did you hear him, Sue? You're supposed to hit the button with the camera. I think you already did that. Last week, Bob went in and out, and somehow then I got back on. But this isn't, I've tried the camera. It doesn't yeah. work on. She said she's already done that, Mike. It's kind of hard to troubleshoot that without seeing it. Right, right. Bob, just don't worry about it. I'll okay, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna click off. Okay, sorry, but thanks. No okay, okay. You have a good evening. Say hi to Megan when you talk with her. Okay, All right. okay. Bye. <clears throat> Let's start. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start this poem. Um. There's only one thing that I want to cover before we do our discussion, after, after the poem. Um, and it goes to the problem that, that um, we were talking about last week, and particularly um, in the context of Barbara's comments. Um, so it has to do with poetry and prophecy. And, sorry, and, um, God, sorry. And, oh boy, I, I'm, um, I am, I can't handle, I, I don't know this stuff any more than Sue. I've just, uh, I'm going to mute, mute everybody. Um, if anybody needs to come back on, come back on, okay? Um, I want to speak to this question of justice in a little bit larger context. And I, in, in I want to read some passages from Job that go to our discussion, but I'd like to, I'd like to, um, so that's where we're going tonight. I want to get back to our discussion, but I want to do it through a larger perspective on this issue of justice and some of the things we learned from Job, okay? So that's where we'll pick up. But I want to do this poem because I just think what it, what it offers us um, is a really important light on so much of what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, okay? So if you've got a copy, pick it up because I think it'll help. I'm going to be referring back to other sections and moving forward just briefly. But the focus of our what I'm doing tonight is on the sext. It's the sixth hour. It's the noonday prayer. So we did the prime. We did the terse early morning, mid-morning. This is sext. On our copy, the copy that I sent you, it's page three. It's the center piece of um, Auden's poem, okay? Now just briefly, remember, when the poem began in prime, um, we were in the consciousness of the poet waking up 
and entering the world. And that first awakening of consciousness was likened to Adam in his innocence. The, the whole point of it was is that once he be, so he left the underworld, all the dark things that are in our unconscious, the dreams, the things that we carry down there that are buried, he left that to enter the world. But the question was, when he enters it, um, um, what would happen? How, how would he look at the day? Um, he says, lost, of, um, of course, in myself, owing a death. Um, um, this ready flesh, my honest equal, but my accomplice now, my assassin to be, and my name stands for my historical share of care for a lying, self-made city, afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming of the day will ask. So that every day asks us to die some. We're all going to die anyway. The question is, will we accept that death and whatever he goes on to do? In the Terse, the second section, remember, after shaking hands with a dog, the hangman sets off, and we get a picture of him, the justice who's leaving, who's going to preside over the execution of a man. I think probably the best way to think about this is to go back to Dostoevsky. Remember in the Brothers where Zosimov says, if, if the way we stand in judgment of people isn't with a sense that we, we are among the worst of the worst, we will never be able to make a good judgment. If we stand judging people as if we're better than they are or more just, then the judgments we make are likely to be really bad. Um, so he describes these people setting off, the, the judge um, who's going to apply a rule th that by implication is going to lead to the death of some guy. Somebody's going to be judged in a courtroom. And then he says, um, he, he describes people who want to set off in the day saying, let me not get a dressing down. Let me let nobody tear me up. Let me do everything I can to make this a good day. So people go in. Remember the city that we, we talked about coming into existence with um, Enoch. That the city is an effort to live without God. So people pray and say, let me make this a good day. I want everything to go right. I want everything to be okay. Let me get through this coming day without a dressing down from a superior, being worsted in a repartee. That is, let everything go the way I want. Let it, let it be good. Let me find a lucky coin. Let me hear a new funny story. At this hour, we all might be anyone. It's only our victim knows already that our prayers are heard, that not one of us will slip up, that the machinery of our world will function without a hitch, that today, for once, there will be no squabbling, none of this other stuff. We will have a good Friday. We want this day to be just like any other day when, ironically, it's Good Friday. So, Auden is taking into this mindset of being like everybody else, going into the world, want everything to be all right. But in all of this, as he's describing it, I'm not sure that you'll feel it. There are these subtle ironies that something's not quite right. Um, um, I think I got them all. Hi, Linda. Don, all of you, 
We just started our poem, and it's an important one. I want to I want to get to this because we don't have much time tonight. Um, just going into this, um, one of the things that would be good for you to keep in mind, it's not something a lot of you would be aware of, but we have read some Frost. If you've read what Robert Frost, you know that Robert Frost tends to present his poems in terms of a pastoral surface. Everything's okay. We're in a pastoral world. It's a gray and we're away from the city. But so often what he does is present this pastoral world and, and, and something's wrong. Something's wrong. Um, so there are these subtle ironies, but the ironies are set against this pastoral world on the surface and dark things underneath. Odd's ironies are far, far subtler. I, I, I'm not aware of anything like it in poetry, and I'm saying this honestly. Not even in T.S. Eliot. One of the things that I think it's important to see about Auden, what he's doing is, Auden is standing from the, from the perspective of the world as if he's in sin and he doesn't know it. But he does. So he's describing things the way the world sees things without seeing that there's a lot they don't see. Okay, so in the first two prayer sections, he's described waking up, um, but he's making us aware that there's a victim, that somebody will be a victim in whatever we do during this day. And most people want the day to go just like any other day. They want everything to be fine. But no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. So here, I'm going to read, I've not done this with the other sections, but I'm going to read it now. So be patient with me as I go through this, the text. You need not see what someone's doing to know if it's vocation. You have only to watch his eyes, a cook mixing a sauce, a surgeon making a primary incision, a clerk completing a bill of lading, wear the same rapt expression, forgetting themselves in a function. So everybody in the city, or most people in the city, you can tell if they have a calling because of the purposefulness in their eyes. You can see that they're intent on what they're doing. They want everything to go well. Wear the same rapt expression, forgetting themselves in a function. How beautiful it is, that eye on the object look. To ignore the impetitive goddesses, to desert the formidable shrines of Rhea, Aphrodite, Demeter, Diana, to pray instead to St. Phocas, St. Barbara, San Chernino, um, or whoever one's patron is, that one may be worthy of their mystery, what a prodigious step to have taken. So to move away from the appetites, the, the worship of the earthly gods, the pagan gods, which were all in nature, to take that step away, that first step away from being caught up in whatever it is we give ourselves in the world and to identify with these saints. And every one of them died, I think every one of them died a martyr's death. So here's already an irony. These are not just people who forget themselves in a function. You know, they got that purposeful look. They all died. They, they were martyred. There should be monuments. There should be odes to the nameless heroes who took it first to the first flaker of flints who forgot his dinner, the first collector of seashells to remain celibate. I love that. I'm assuming the seashells is that most people who collect seashells are very romantic-minded, um, but don't let their romanticism catch them up 
you know, they decide to be celibate. The ironies here are so subtle. Where should we be but for them? Feral still, unhousehold, unhouse trained still, wandering through forests without a consonant to our names, slaves of dame lady, dame kind, lacking all notions of a city, and at this noon, for this death, there would be no agents. So without these people who take this step to give themselves, to forget themselves in the work they were doing, we would live in this primitive existence, like people in villages or feral, animal. Um, so it's only because of these people that we, um, that we can actually come into a city and in some way seem to get beyond ourselves. Dame kind, it seems to me, is just a metaphor for um, that kindness that all of us share because we want to do good with each other. So we do all this good. Slaves of Dame Kind, lacking all notions of a city, and at this noon, for this death, there would be no agents. So without these agents, there would not be a Good Friday. It's only because these people are there that this death occurs. It's only because of them that we enter into a city, into a civilized state of existence, um, to something more. Second section. You need not hear what orders he's given to know if someone has authority. You have only to watch his mouth. When a besieging general sees a city wall breached by his troops, when a bacteriologist realizes in a flash what was wrong with this hypothesis, when from a glance at the jury, the prosecutor knows the defendant will hang. Their lips and lines around them relax, assuming an expression not of simple pleasure at getting their own sweet way, but of satisfaction of being right. Of fortitudo justicia nus, that is fortitude, staying with something, justice, and, um, and noose, a mind, the, the, the presence of mind to do something. You may not like them much who does, but we owe them basilicas, divas, dictionaries, pastoral verse, the courtesies of the city. Without these judicial mouths, which belong for the most part to very great scoundrels, how squalid existence would be tethered for life to some hut village, afraid of the local snake, or the local Ford demon, speaking the local patois of some 300 words. Think of the family squabbles and the poison pen. Think of the inbreeding. At this noon, there would be no authority to command this death. So, in the second section, he's, he's giving us various images of authority who act to make sure that things get done. Um, there's a presence. They actually accomplish things. It's at the center of the city. Take those things away. We wouldn't have a city. It's only because these people have the presence to do it. It was the, that commanding authority that things get done. But it leaves us, and he, the focus is a little bit on the jury and the prosecutor, not of simple pleasure at getting their own sweet way, but of satisfaction of being right. So that when they make a judgment on this person, and this is the second time, because remember it open with the judge and the hangman going off, somebody's going to die. Somebody's going to feel the effects of a judgment. 
Um, we, not, we may not like these people, but they're important. Um, and it's because of them that we're raised above this squalid hut village existence, the patois, the 300 words, this narrow world, we're elevated into something more. Okay, so from a number of different perspectives in this section, um, um, in the sext, we're given an image of humans being elevated to something that happens in the city. Okay. Now the third section, the, the, the last of the sections, of the three sections that make up this, this prayer, the, the sext. Anywhere you like, somewhere on broad-chested life-giving earth, anywhere between her thirst lands and undrinkable ocean, the crowd stands perfectly still, its eyes, which seem one, and its mouths, which seem infinitely many, expressionless, perfectly blank. The crowd does not see what everyone sees, a boxing match, a train wreck, battleship being launched, does not wonder, as everybody, as everybody wonders, who will win, what flag she will fly, how many will be burned alive, is never distracted, as everyone is always distracted, by a barking duck. So hold on. So right now, he's describing the crowd, and he's distinguishing it, at least for a moment, from everybody else in the world who is at least distracted by a ship taking off, an at, um, a sports event, a dog barking, whatever it is. But the crowd is distinguished apart from that for a second. Um, is never distracted as, as everyone is always distracted by barking dog, fish, mosquito. The crowd sees only one thing, which only the crowd can see, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done Whatever God a person believes in, in whatever way he believes, no two are exactly alike, as one of the crowd he believes and only believes in that in which there is only one way of believing. Few people accept each other, and most will never do anything properly. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. So to come out of this condition of being distracted by these things, paying attention to them, the one thing, the only thing that all men can do is join this crowd. Few people accept each other and most will never do anything properly, but the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are our brothers, superior because of that, to the social exoskeletons. I think that means people who who wear their insides out. Um, when have they ever ignored their queens for one second stopped work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying? Now, if you take... So, the first section deals with his people who seem who give away a calling because their look is so purposeful. We can see something so purposeful that they've learned to put themselves away. In the section section, he's dealing with the importance of authority, how, how important authority is for getting things done. And in the third section, he's talking about this crowd um, that, that people can come into, and it's only because of this crowd 
that people can call each other's brothers. Um, but then he ends with this curious line, only because of that can we say all men are brothers, superior, because of that, to the social exo exoskeletons, to this wearing our insides out. When have they ever ignored their queens for one second, stopped work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of his dying? Now my question, who is this crowd? And if we put the three sections together, the, the, the three sections of the sext, this noon prayer, this is a prayer that he says at noon. If we put the three sections of it together, what's the action of all three saying? What are all three of these sections saying? Tracy, I love that head shake of yours. I don't think it's an easy poem. I, I think the ironies in this are extraordinary. It's just, uh, but any thoughts, anybody? This is structured around a prayer. Remember, in the first section, it ends for a dying self-made city, afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask. Terse, the second section. Everybody wants this to be a good day. They make prayers to their gods. Let everything go okay. Let everything be I want. Um, we shall have a good Friday. But we know at the center of this city is a victim. And then in the third section at noon, we've got this sense of purpose, a sense of a calling, an authority, and then this image of the crown. So what do you all make? That's the way civilization comes about. You know, once you get a huge crowd of people, um, there's got to be some kind of order. And right. it just gradually comes about. Yeah. Marcy, I think that's absolutely perfect. Now, my question is, is there an irony to this? What's, what are all these subtle references at the end of each of these three sections about this victim? this death, because remember, what's being subtly hinted at, it, it, it's sort of buried in the description of what's going on, but what's underneath every one of them is that there is this victim, this death that's taking place <clears throat> on Good Friday. Okie dokie, well they need to tell me who is dying and why. <laughs> Can anybody answer Marcy's question? And if it's me, I'd have a lot to say. Jeannie, what do you say? I, I am sorry that I missed the whole reading because I was in the other room trying to print and I finally got it to print. So I, I've missed your whole reading tonight, so I'm going to have to Read it on my own. And no, I'm not going to let you off the hook of that. That's read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I if I had known we were going to do this tonight, I would have taken time to print it before tonight. <laughs> this is what I do in class. We've got to be on the spot when we haven't even studied something. Anybody? Um, well, the only person who died on Good Friday was Christ. Did you hear Doc? Can you speak up, Don? No. 
The person who died on Good Friday was Christ. Okay. Okay. And? You asked who died. Let me, let me try to narrow this down. At the very end, because remember, the judge was introduced, the hangman, in the very opening, that people are off to do their chores, their tasks. Remember the opening. In the terse, the hangman sets off briskly over the heath. He does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice. That is, some person is going to serve for the purposes of this civilization. So he's presenting the city as, remember, the, the, the city is an image, as Marcy said, of the, of the very great things we can accomplish. And yet, even though he's, he's presenting um, circumstances that the city that, that make us aware that there's something great going on, there's something basically wrong. The hangman sets off. He does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice. The fact that he phrases it like that means what? That somebody will be provided to do the high works of justice with? The judge descends his marble stairs. He does not know by what sentence. He will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. But all these people are doing these great things. What's wrong? Is, is there a reference to a scapegoat in this? Kathy, say it again. Sorry, I didn't hear it. A scapegoat. There's not a reference, but go ahead. What's? Can you flesh out your question? What you're... Well, you said something about he doesn't know, he, the human doesn't know who the victim is. Right. So he really doesn't care who the victim is, he just needs a victim. Right. Remember the, the end of the second in the terse. Let it be a good day. Let me find a lucky coin. That is, everybody sets off to have this good day. And everybody wants it to be just like every other day. Except it's not every other day. It's Good Friday. It's marking a death. At this hour, we all might be anyone. It's only our victim um, who is without a wish, who already, who knows already who knows that, in fact, our prayers are heard. Everybody's going to get what they want. What's the problem? That none of us will slip up, that the machinery of our world will function without a hitch, that today, for once, no squabbling, we will go home, think, good day. No Thonian mutters of unrest, but no other miracle knows that by sundown, we shall have had a good Friday. So everybody will go to their work, do a good job, and come home, and they'll say, I had a good day today. Except, it's not just another day. It's Good Friday. And then in the sex, we've got, I mean, I read through the whole poem here, we've got these people who have the sense of purpose, these authorities who get things done, and then we've got this image of a crowd. Um, let me just read some of the lines again then. Um, they're not distracted by these other things. Um, never distracted as, as other people are by dogs, fish. The crowd sees only one thing which only the crowd can see. An epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Now hold on to these lines. This crowd sees only one thing which only the crowd can see. An epiphany of that which does whatever is 
done. Whatever God a person believes in, whatever way he believes, and only believes in that in which there is only one way of believing, few people accept each other and most will never do anything properly. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. So, what's the difference between few people accept each other and most will never do anything properly, but the crowd rejects no one? Remember, it just said, um, the crowd sees only one thing, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. But the crowd rejects no one. Joining the crowd is the only thing all men can do. Only because of that can we say all men are brothers, superior because of that, to the social exoskeletons. When have they ever ignored their queens for one second stop work on their provincial, on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this night? Who's the prince of this world? Marcy, why do you say that? What? Well, because I've read it many times that he is. No, but make sense of it in terms of the poem. Hmm. Well, okay, I had only read the sixth one. I had not, I hadn't read the one just before that, terse. So now I see that there is a hangman there. There's a judge. So now I understand that someone is going to be, likely going to be killed that day. Executed, yeah. yeah. But the, um, the prince of the world, that is just a statement that I've heard over and over and over, that Satan is the... Yeah, but we've got to stay in the poem. We have to, you, we, you can't read parts, Marcy. You have to read holes. Um, any, any other thoughts before? Nikki, I think, go ahead, Kathy, go ahead. The crowd comes together and really uh, to form a, a, unit, a unity that is for the, for the crowd, for the world. And it really... Um, to go forth and if it, you know it, I, I think you know, I'm, I'm lost <laughs> let me offer this um, the amazing thing about the ironies here is that so many of the descriptions are from the perspective of the city the ironies are really subtle because even though he's presenting things as they appear to the city, he does it in a way that suggests something's not right. We've been talking about the importance of the city from the very beginning. It's, it's man's attempt to live without God. It shows everything great about him. It, um, without it, we would live in this primitive existence, you know, be these fishing huts or these village huts, um, feral like animals. One of the great ironies is that there's there's always a victim to what we do. So we set off every day um, attempting to do all these things in our pride without even seeing that the cost of it is going to be a victim. Um, 
he keeps making these allusions to a judge and a jury. And remember the description of the jury. Their lips and their lines around them relax, assuming an expression not of simple pleasure at getting their own sweet way, but of satisfaction at being right. Um, what, what Auden is showing us is that this great civilization um, um, is, is, <laughs> is like a necessary evil. That people do all these great things, but the cost of it all, and the cost of it is going to be that it will help make possible Christ's crucifixion. They're agents of bringing it. They need, they need somebody to bring everybody there, and they need an authority to make it happen. Pilate, Herod. So that's the basis of our civilization. What he's showing us is that underneath our civilization is a mechanism of scapegoating. There's nothing, nothing, nothing we do that doesn't have a scapegoat as our cost. When we set out in life, whatever we do to set out each day, whatever, however good we think we are, the cost of it somewhere is going to be a scapegoat. Somebody's going to suffer for us. Our self-righteousness, that we think we're right. You know, just for an example, this I, I don't want to stir things up here. Think about all the black people who are going to go to jail and be executed because of the violence. Think about policemen who are going to be taken to jail and executed because one, let's say one policeman had his knee on a black guy too long. You're going to have both sides judging the black guy and the police guy. With nobody, nobody on either side understanding that at the heart of our civilization, our attempt to make this great civilization, is a cost. It's a scapegoating mechanism. We will turn people into scapegoats in all the efforts that we make to be good. We'll act righteous, we'll be satisfied. The satisfaction of being right, an incarnation of fortitude, justicia. It's interesting. Fortitude, justicia, noose. Fortitude, justice, a sense of knowledge, a sense of presence. Nothing in there in the way of self-sacrifice or love. What's behind every day, Good Friday, is a death. Um, a scapegoat to answer all our sins. So in this um, mid-noon section, it's, a, it's just a, to me, it's a stunning, subtle presentation of, um, of the ways in, in which we go about our lives in the world without understanding that so much of what we do is going to put somebody in the place of a victim. At this hour, we all might be anyone it's only our victim who knows already. The guy who's going to be condemned in a courtroom. And remember, God, it's just the irony of these lines. God, they, um, the hangman, he does not, God, this stunning. He does not know yet who will be provided. That's the language of somebody providing a lamb. And I hope you all hear that. In the Jewish rituals, you provided a lamb for the sacrifice, right? That's not the way you talk about somebody going to a courtroom. He does not know yet who will be provided to do the high works of justice. That belongs to a Jewish court. Somebody's going to be provided for this sacrifice. Somebody's going to have to pay the cost. He will be executed, go to jail. And we will feel better because this guy's put away. 
Remember what Zosimov said. Can we ever fully know the heart of a man? Can anybody know the, the heart of a man who's going to be executed the way God does? Gently closing his door, the justice of the peace, the judge, closes the door in his wife's bed. Today she has one of her headaches. She's in her own world. With a sigh, the judge descends his marble stair. He does not know by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. He, in his great magnitude, is going to make a decision um, that very likely, in in this context, um, will be the death of a man, whoever the person is. So, Hore canonice imolatus vicerit, the canonical hours, um, Christ crucified, victorious. He's been subtly describing the, the daily activities that we go through without knowing that in some ways the cost of what each one of us does, however good we think we are, um, will be a scapegoat. Our wives, our husbands, our children, our friends, our colleagues, um, and at the center of so at the center of this Good Friday is Christ who's atoning and asking us to take that next step. Um, to, to do whatever we do in him. I'm just going to read the opening lines of the, of the knowns, the ninth hour, the midday. It's the fourth section. So just look, I'm just going to read it just so you can see where we're going, because I, I think it'll help clarify what we're talking about. So he's just, he's just ended um, the, the, the sext saying, when have they ever ignored their queens? These, the, the beauty of, particularly of women who move men, for one second stopped work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying. It's Good Friday, that death will be Christ. The Nones begins this way, and I'll just read the beginning. What we know to be not possible, though time and time foretold by wild hermits, by shaman and sibyl, gibbering in their trances. We've heard it all before, religious things gibbering in their trances, or revealed to a child in some chance rhyme, like will and kill, comes to pass before we realize it. What we know to be not possible, even though we've heard hints of it in shamans and, you know, religious stories told us when we were kids, comes to pass before we realize it. We are su- So what surprises us? What happens that we would think impossible. I'm assuming it's the death of a god. How, how could a god die? How could a god die? It's not going to happen. What we know to be not possible um, comes to pass before we realize it. We are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed and uneasy. It is barely three mid-afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry on the grass. We are not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. The day is too hot, too bright, too still. To ever, the dead remains to nothing. 
no longer there. What shall we do till nightfall? It's done, over. So on the surface, it just, you know, he's just describing people going about there, petting a dog, leaving to go to work. Um, but at the center of this civilization, this great thing we've created is a scapegoat. Um, we, our civilization rests on a scapegoat mechanism. Our very success depends on somebody having provided us um, with somebody to do our justice with. Boy, let me stop. Tracy, what's your response? Truly, I want an honest response because I'm. Can you take it? Just put it. Thanks. Tracy, what's your response? Uh, well, as a supervisor of people at work, it makes me. Um, kind of unnerved, I suppose. Like, I work really hard to. <laughs> Uh, be good. Be good, supportive, constructive. Yep. yep. But you know, you have. <laughs> it's the supervising people is rough. Bless your soul. Bless that soul of yours. Be extra responsible. This is telling me to be extra Can responsible. Let me back in. If I have to <laughs> Who's that? Mark. Oh, Mark. Sorry, um, Mark just called these. I don't, should we let Mark back in the room? I don't know. <laughs> anybody? Anybody else? Um, anybody else? Bob. Yeah, who's that? Kathy. Kathy. Yeah, go ahead. I have a question, and I don't know if uh, it's pertinent, but it seems to me that somewhere along the line, I read—I I don't know if it's a short story or what—it was called the lottery. Right, right. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They had a lottery. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know the story. Um, so. Um, by the way, of, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. I, I mean, when we were talking about this, I have not thought of that story. I'll bet for fifty years. Right. Right. Like right. Right. What um, and I think it was a village, and they escaped, and they had a lottery, and and it wasn't, it didn't affect you at all until it was your child, until it was your right, right, your right, right, yeah, and then there, you know, then you realize, yeah, yeah, the story. Just so you know, I mean, you you all. You could check it out. You could probably go online and get it. I'm not sure, but at the heart of that story is the way in which it's just it's another way of rendering what we're talking about. That that whether we know it or not, um, there's very little that we do that doesn't play out some need to put somebody else in the place of our own crimes, whether we're criticizing them or judging them or doing something. We're we're inflicting a, a scapegoat condition on somebody um, to make it possible for us to do what we do. Um,
Tracy, just so uh, you know, wait, it's just if you can't hold on, just because I don't want to, I don't want to lose, because if I do, I, I know I'll get back. My feeling when I read, I mean, I, I've been, I haven't read this in ages and, and I didn't read it well, but knowing that I had to do it tonight, I read it. I spent the day grieving over this poem and I felt absolutely convicted. You know, I mean, I, so I, I, I'm so humbled and grateful to you for your comment and your honesty. Um, it's what I felt, you know, that I don't think you can read this without wondering in how many small ways do I do this without even seeing it? You know, that, that, that our civilization rests on it. If, if we think about this at all, if we go back to the beginning with Enoch and the city, you know, trying to create something without God, we do all these great things and we take such pride and we, we are stupid because we think we see so much when we don't. That there are things that we do without understanding, even even when we're doing the best. This is Eliot, by the way, in the four cuts, with the best of intentions, we're still not seeing something about ourselves. Unless we go to a cross with Christ, this is what we do. So Auden, you know, it's really interesting to see the way Auden and Eliot, at, at a time when all of Europe is aware that we're in a post-Christian world, that the world is turning away from Christ, they're writing this poetry that's very subtle. It's not moralizing. You know, they're not going to go out and um, evangelize because they know nobody's going to listen to them. They're writing this extraordinary poetry with these extraordinary ironies that are um, deeply Christian without being obviously Christian. And if you read them seriously, um, it seems that you can't come out of them without a shaken heart and shaking your mind. So I was just appreciating... Tracy, your own honesty about it. Good for you. Um, we can. I, I want to get to the, the our discussion back to justice and and where we left off last week. But any more comments? Any other comments on next week? Read the next the next prayer section. The well, I've forgotten what it is. The knowns. Think. Read that for next, so we can carry through. It's a good poem. It, it really is. An, it's a modern poem. It's it's so important. Marcy, you read that whole thing, not parts. Not parts. <laughs> anyway, all of you read it. It's a good poem. It's a good poem. It was Bob's fault. <laughs> I, I believe that. <laughs> he printed it off too late for me to be able to read it, okay? That's, that's what Adam said about Eve, too. <laughs> it's her fault. <laughs> any any other last comments before we before we return to where we were last week? Um, the poem shook me. It's a shaking poem. It's so subtle, so subtle. God. Okay. Um, quickly. I've got two notions that I want to just cover briefly before we pick up our question for last week. Um, Uh-oh. Doc, yeah. do you have those questions? I think it's probably included in that stack you took. It's with the topics on it. Um, I didn't know it was there. Um, two things quickly, prophecy and justice and mercy. Um, Barbara, I want to get to your comment 
last week because I thought it was so important and I know everybody appreciated it. Um, the topics. Can you, can you just? Um, I want to. I want to read something from Chesterton and put two things together. I've been saying from the beginning that there's this prophetic quality to poetry. Um, and actually, the 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 question that I want to take up tonight with you after we take a few minutes with justice and mercy is actually that question. So, but. Um, let me offer this thought. Chesterton says this in a beginning of a funny, if, if any of you have read Chesterton, you know how, how, no, it's that theme, funny, I don't know where it is. Yeah, I don't know. You can just see if it's in the, yeah, in the bed, it wouldn't be there, or maybe it is. Maybe in the bedroom, I'm not sure. Um, this is Chesterton, the beginning of an essay in a book can't remember what a miscellany of men it's called the mystagon whenever you hear much of things unutterable and indefinable and impalpable and unnameable and suddenly indescribable <laughs> you know when he exaggerates that much <laughs> he's having fun then elevate your aristocratic nose towards heaven and snuff up the smell of decay it's perfectly true that there is something to all good things that is beyond speech or figure of speech but it's also true that there is in all good things a perpetual desire for expression and concrete embodiment. And though the attempt to embody it is always inadequate, the attempt is always made. All of us struggle to find words to say something that we know will always be inadequate. But we do it anyway. It's important. If the idea does not seek to be the word, the chances are that it's an evil idea. If the word is not made flesh, it's a bad word. I love that because it's an affirmation of our belief. The Gnostic, the Gnostic who, who disavows the Incarnation, won't care if he goes off into space. There are lots of people who are going to say, I can't describe it. I mean, I, I'm giving myself away here. I can remember when Suzanne and I were first going sort of walking around each other and we would be in the library and I would write, write notes and um, and all my life I've been reluctant to get Valentine cards. I hate that stuff. Um, it's hard for me to feel that I ever can do justice to what I feel for her. Um, and I know that can be an excuse for not living the right way, but I think all of us feel that at times that it's just hard to express our feelings because they're so deep at times. You know, it's just too hard to, they're too hard. We struggle. One of the reasons I'm so grateful for poetry is that it's helped me to go into that. So, I would say that um, poetry's always pushing us, poetry is always pushing us into the unknown, but through the things that are known. Poetry is always taking us into the unknown through what's known, through what's there. That's one of the beauties. I mean, you know that. We've been doing this for years now, that when we, when we read these works, we enter a world that's familiar with uh, to us, but it helps us to see things that we didn't see before. So we learn. 
And it's not an abstract learning. We're not in ideas. That's the, we're not in abstractions. We're in the concrete world. Things as they actually exist. That's why it's so different from other kinds of knowledge. So poetry um, always pushes us, takes us in to the unknown through what's there. Through what's already known, okay? So um, words are teachers of things. They teach us. They help us. To, to Words are teachers of actions. You know, we, we go into a literary world and we see people acting and it helps us to um, to do better in what we do. I'm, I'm sorry, Can I don't see Candy's list on the name tonight, but if you remember our discussion last week, he, she made the point. She said, there's a word here we have been using in our talk about um, justice and mercy. She said, the word's compassion. She said, compassion is that feeling you have when you're standing in the shoes of another person. You know, literature does that. It 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 helps us stand in the shoes of other people. We actually live with them, whether it's Othello or Billy Budd, um, Ahab, Ishmael, um, Ike, Oriol. It doesn't matter. We enter the lives of other people and our own. It's like the, I've been saying this from the beginning, it's like the Eucharist. We participate in the lives of other. It gets us out of our own narrow worlds where too often we can become too self-righteous. We think we know everything. So we're not, we're not at a level of abstractions. We enter into the world concretely. So poetry takes us into that world and it expands our own. And Chesterton's line, you know, if the ideas does not seek to be the word, if it doesn't strive towards the word, the chances are that it's an evil idea. If the word is not made flesh, it's a bad word. Everything we try to do is towards incarnation. It's to incarnate, it's to see, it's to use words to help us understand. Words are teachers of actions to help us to see. Okay, is that clear? I mean, you all know that. That's, otherwise, what have we been doing for years together? It's Words have opened up a great idea. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a living kind of incarnation. It's like working with Christ. We're entering into the lives of people in, to help us see more, to help us see better, to not make judgments that are silly judgments, and have better hearts to be able to feel what other people feel. So it's a great gift to us. That's the first idea I wanted to leave you with. The second is... Um, this notion of justice. Sorry. Cheers, you guys. <laughs> it's, it's Suzanne's fault. She put it here. Um, this idea of justice, okay? Um... I, I was touched by what Barbara said last week, and I think most of you were as well. So I, I want to go back to that because it was really, really important. Um, remember early on in our work together, when I presented Plato's image of the soul, that according to Plato, the soul has a nature. 
there are these two faculties, the rational and the appetitive. If you could draw a circle and put it into two, a small circle at the top and the bigger one at the bottom, inside a big circle, big side, the circle is the soul, the circle at the top and a larger circle at the bottom. The, the small circle at the top is rationality, it's reason, it's the faculty of reason. The larger circle at the bottom is the appetites. You all remember this, right? We have a rational faculty, we have an appetitive faculty. The appetitive faculty is divided into two. The desires for noble things, truth, beauty, goodness, unity, it's the transcendentals, what we'd call, and the appetites for physical things, food, drink, sex, all those things. And Plato recognized, I mean, from just experience, that the, the soul is often divided. And I think he gave the example of if a person went to a spring and he was um, um, dying of thirst, he needed water, and he was rushing towards the spring, and then suddenly he saw a sign that said poison. Why wouldn't he drink? Because his mind knows, even though his appetites don't want to listen to him, that he might die. So there's a conflict between our, the intellectual part in us and our desires. And he, he further elaborated on it by showing that some of our desires are, are, are directed towards higher eternal things. Goodness, truth, beauty, art, philosophy, religion, and the lower desires, the desires of the body, food, cake, sex. Um, Dante understood the same scheme. But the value of what Plato was doing was not only trying to show us that there's an order to the soul, that one of the great conflicts, we tasks we face in our life is learning to order our own soul, to order our own emotions. And because so often in our pride, we blind ourselves and we let appetites take over. And you know that, that for most people, um, the danger is in thinking they have the answers those are the people stuck in the cave. They don't question. They don't question things. They, they've got all the answers. So long as you don't question yourself, you're stuck in the cave. It's only when you begin to admit that you don't have the answers and you begin to question, you can come out of the cave. We've been through this numerous times, so I know you all know them. But the point for Plato wasn't just that we had to order our souls. For Plato, he understood that the part of the struggle that we had in ordering our souls was to bring them into order with God's creation because there was an order to his world and there was an affinity between humans and God's creation. So part of what we were doing was bringing our part of in our efforts to attain justice in ourselves we had to become one with his order. We had to acknowledge there's a larger, a larger order and we couldn't order our own souls if we didn't come into that way. If we didn't learn to see what God was doing and be open to him and learn from him. Once again, if we thought we had all the answers, we're likely to misread. In our own pride, we get in the way. So coming out of the cave was not just a personal thing, private. Let's say the way it would be for, let's say for a Protestant who said, my private will. It wasn't just a private thing. It meant for anybody to come out of the cave, they had to learn to enter a larger world. God's, a world with other people and God's order. And the, the model for that effort was Socrates. 
you know that he had this calling from the gods to go out and question everybody. And you know the effects of that. When he went out and questioned everybody, he made everybody angry at him because he'd make them realize they didn't, they thought they had all the answers and they didn't. And when they discovered that they didn't, they got angry at him and killed him. It's exactly what happened with Christ. Okay. So justice was never just legal justice. Not what was on the books. Justice for Plato meant ordering our souls in accord with God's order. We saw that in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Plato, Boethius, Shakespeare, Dante. Okay. Now let me just try to make this concrete. I know that's abstract a little bit. I want to just quote some passages from uh, Job. Okay. You all know the Job story. Um, Boethius is based on it. That um, early on, the devil challenges God and says the only reason Job is good is because he has everything he wants from you. Property and family and it's all the things people have ever wanted. Wealth and possessions and comfort and security and everything we want. And God gives the devil uh, free reign to test Job and he does. He takes away everything and Job is crushed and you know that, that immediately his three friends jump on him and say the reason you've lost all these things is because you're in sin. You've done all these things against God and God's now punishing you. So that Old Testament sense of the reason all these things are happening is because God's angry at you and he's punishing you. And Job is maintaining, no, he's a good, he's a good man. And at some point he, he ends up arguing with each one of these men and then at the end he has to confront Yahweh, God. So here are some of the passages. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, Who is it that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? There are those words again. Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. God. Of course you know, because you have all the answers. We all know people. I mean, there's some instinct in all of us, but I, we know that there's some people who just are convinced they have all the answers. God is talking to one of them here. Gird up your loins like a man, I will question you. Where were you when I laid the... Who determined this measure? Surely you know, because you got all the answers. God, I love the irony. The ironies are so... It's, they're comic here. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy... Or who shut in the area with the door? It goes on and on. He gets to the, remember the descriptions of the Leviathan, this great thing. He said, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Because remember, God created everything. The, the whale was one of the, this is what Melville was playing with in Moby Dick. The whale is one of the greatest, most powerful figures in the world. And if Job's going to claim he knows everything and he's been good and he's got all the answers, God is pushing him and saying, you know, were you there at the beginning and do you have all this power? Can you put a fish hook in the whale? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make supplications to you? Will he speak to, your, um, to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you? God, 
to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on leash for your maidens? Will traitors bark? He goes on and on like this. I mean, it's just, it's funny because Job should be ashamed because he's been making these claims like he's got all the answers. And what God is making clear is that he doesn't understand anything. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you, and you declare to me. I had heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust dust and ashes. It's only when he stands before his God, knowing that he's nothing, and stops thinking that he sees everything, that he finally is with God as he should be. And it's after that that the Lord speaks to his three friends. These are the guys who had all the answers. They're the ones who could explain everything to Job. And God says, do penance. Because Job was right and you weren't. They have to do penance or God's going to punish them. And then, he, and then he restores everything tenfold to what Job had. The cattle, the possessions, he's got children. His, his, I don't think his wife was ever killed. So he's given more children and he is wealthier and happier. Um, and after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons for generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. He had a rich life because he turned and stopped acting like he knew everything. Um, now here's where I want to go with this. We've, we've learned from the beginning, from our little Iliad, the Odyssey, all of it, Plato, Old Testament, we, from Christ, from Dante, the justice is never, we, from Brothers Karamazov, a man, Moses was a murderer. God chose him to lead his people into the promised land. Cain was a murderer. God didn't punish him. He sent him in exile, put a mark on his head and said, don't anybody touch this man. Um, God doesn't overlook injustices. He's, he doesn't pass on murders. You know that he, um, he encouraged the Israelites to go to war to kill the neighboring peoples because they were all worshiping false gods. That was the greatest sin. Um, we saw in Brothers that the man who came to um, Zosima when he was, or sorry, Dimitri when he was younger, was a killer, a murderer. And um, Dimitri, wasn't Dimitri, am I talking about Zosima? Zosima, and encouraged him to finally confess, and he did. And he died a happier man. So we've, we've experienced men who are killed, Othello. To me is, I mean, I, I think it's one of Shakespeare's greatest tragedies. Um, he killed Desdemona, it's the wife he loved. Um, we know that according to earthly justice, not everybody will be held accountable. We also know that earthly justice will never do just complete justice to a man. Because there are things, we just read it in Auden's poem. There are things about us that are transcendent. People who think they know other people absolutely couldn't be more more inhuman. We can't know each other the way God does. We're not God. 
So however well we know people, we know, we believe, this is our belief, that there are things about other people we don't know. Only God does. He's the searcher of hearts. So we leave final justice in. We cannot, we cannot, without endangering ourselves, say, God damn that person. It's not up to us. We don't know. We're not supposed to do that. Only God does. So however good our judgments are, they lack something. There's a transcendent aspect to every soul. That's the whole point of on section. There's going to be a victim. We're going to use somebody to show how good we are as a scapegoat. So according to earthly justice, we will never be able to do, we do the best we can. We, we put murders in jail. We put robbers in jail. We tell our kids time out and put them on restrictions. You know, we do everything we can to be just. God asks us to bring a mercy toward justice. Sorry, the point I'm making here is that um, Barbara last week was talking about the death of her father and the fact that whoever killed him is, that's got to be an awful thing to live with. But we have a solace that people who only live by earthly justice don't. From every Boethius, Boethius is going to be killed. He's going to be executed. Undeservedly. Philosophy, Lady Philosophy is saying, stop crying. You know that there's an ultimate justice to things. Um, the people who executed him or accused him falsely will be answerable to a justice. Whoever killed Barbara's father, even if they never find him, um, Barbara, all of us should have some consolation that we know that even if this guy isn't found, he won't be answered. What we also know from our readings, we've seen it again and again and again in all these great readings, that whoever killed him may have a conversion. Our prayer should be, whoever that guy was, help him turn. We know really good men, good people in the readings that we read who committed murders. We're not asked to let people off. We're asked to be just, but we're asked to be merciful too. But we're also, because of our faith, we know that we live in a larger world. God allows evil. This has been one of our great themes. We have to trust in him because we can't see what he does. But our belief in him, this is the whole argument of um, Boethius, there's nothing going on in this world that he doesn't try to bring some good out of. The clearest expression of that was Dante. There are people in hell because they did awful things and did not repent. There are people in purgatory. Some of them were murderers. There are people in purgatory who want mercy. That's why they're there. Um, so justice for us, remember, has this, these multi-levels. Positive justice, the justice on the law books, should be in accord with natural law. I sent you guys, <clears throat> I hope you looked at that piece I sent. I hope it helped. I'm not sure that it did. But we believe that all positive laws should reflect natural law. All natural law, remember in the, in the Declaration, the God of nature, that's in the de that's, that was our justification for breaking from England. The God of nature and of nature's laws. It's under that we have those inalienable rights. They cannot be taken from anybody. Not a king, queen, nobody, nobody can take those rights from us. They're vested in us by God. Our whole constitutional way of life rests on God and his laws. 
They're not Catholic, they're not Protestant, they're universal. They're meant to protect everybody. So our belief is that positive law should reflect that. We, our belief in, was that slavery was wrong because it was contrary to God's laws, even though there were laws in the books that defended slavery. There are laws today defending, supporting abortion. We believe they're wrong. They have to be rewritten to be brought into accord with natural law. That natural law is rooted in divine law and scripture, and the divine law is rooted in God himself. He's the source of all law. So our notion of justice isn't just positive justice. It's much deeper. We are called to make our souls just, to, to order our souls. With Christ, we're asked to be just, but to bring a mercy to our efforts to be just that makes us one with Christ. Um, that's our call. That's our faith. That's what we've been doing. So um, with that, I'd like to pause for a minute and ask, I mean, I'd like to return to the question about mercy and justice. I've, I've got a couple of questions. I want, I want to try to make this more concrete. But before I do, I, I want to really want to make that, I've got a couple of problems to present to you guys in terms of this call that we have to bring justice and mercy together, what your thoughts are. But before I do, any, any comments or responses to what I just said? In, in Auden's poem, we're seeing that every one of us is involved in an activity to try to do the very best we can, but we're in a fall. How often do we use what we're doing to show how much better that we are than other, that we have got all these great things we're doing, and without realizing it, we're creating scapegoats. We're implicated in, in this mechanism of scapegoating on which the earthly city rests. Or at least that's Auden's. Anyway, any questions about justice, the, the way I'm presenting it here and its its various levels? I can't get with you all the way there, Bob. Sorry. Go ahead. What what's the difference, Mark? What's the what's the what's the difficulty? Well, I mean there, there, there are several things. You know, you're talking about people want to make scapegoats, and yes, some people do, but there are others who don't. And it seems like a really broad generalization to shit on all of humanity because some people want to do some bad things, and I don't think that's that's a very good way to look at it. Um, we all have agency. We all have the ability to make choices, to do the right thing or the wrong thing. And some people make the wrong choices. Some, and that, that, that's true. But some people make the right choices. And if you make the right choices, that, that whole thing just doesn't apply. Period. There's human nature, but if you go looking for a scapegoat, sure, you'll find one. But if you choose not to, then you're okay. So don't, you know, you can't sit there and lump everything into one here. I, I just think that's extremely. Uh, I just think that's a crappy thing to do. Yeah. The I the I, question. I just can't get there on this. Yeah, one. yeah. I don't. I'm not sure that we're arguing d differing too much. The only the only question that I'd add to that, Mark, is and it's a question is because I think you know me well enough that I that I believe that virtue is a real possibility here. That we're called a virtue, which means um, we're capable in our natural condition of doing the right thing, of being good. The question after Christ comes for us is, is I mean, to make it even more explicit, if you look at Dante's Hell, um, Plato and Aristotle and the great poets, Aristotle, the, Dante calls them virtuous men. 
they're good men. They're not being punished. So they're not there because they did bad things to people. The, the question after Christ comes is, is even if we do the right thing, because you can be virtuous, um, if we're left in our natural condition, all, most Christians would answer this in one definitive way. Protestants would for sure, because they believe we're corrupted. Catholics don't. We believe we're not corrupted, we're wounded. But no Catholic worth his salt could say we could get to heaven on our own with all of our right choices. The question is, when we're right, are there degrees of rightness? Um, can we ever be completely right the way Christ asks of us without dying? And I don't mean, you know, being martyred, but one of the things that the saints show us, whether they're martyred or not, is they completely gave their lives up. So they obviously did the right thing, whatever it was they were doing, or they wouldn't be saints. But they're different from other people in the sense that whatever right they did was different from the right of other people because there was a greater self-giving in what they did. Um, so in that they were, they were less likely to make scapegoats of it. I don't want to make this a black-white thing. If I've done that, I've not, not been clear because I, and I hope everybody knows how much I frown on those black-white mindsets. That's not what I'm saying. It's that when Auden presents this poem, he's, he's showing how, how basic this scapegoating mechanism is to what we do. What I was trying to do with what Barbara said was um, enlarge our sense of justice to show that there are levels of justice so that if, um, if I mean, she's in an awful situation. She lost her father to somebody who killed, who killed him. And she's been left with, you know, without knowing who that murderer is. I was trying to offer some consolation by by going to our faith that our belief is e even if we don't, you know, e even if the murderer is never found, our, our ultimate belief is God's justice is at work. That guy won't escape it. But also to, just to remind everybody that we're asked to be careful of final judgments because there's lots about people we don't see. There's Tom and Linda. I mean, it, let, me, let me even go, let me go farther because I was talking earlier about words. I cannot imagine a therapist. I'm putting therapist and poetry together. I hope Tom and Linda, you don't mind this for a second, but but uh, it's just, poets have got a tough job. If if you're taking what I say seriously, that they're using words to help us see things we don't see very well. I can't imagine a therapist doing his job well without struggling to find words to go into an area that's not known very well. They're always on the edge of mystery. It, it's a risky job because, you know that if if we if we slip into black white judgments it it just makes it much harder for us to help other people um so i i don't want to leave this in a black white thing it's not what i'm it's not what i'm trying to say what i'm saying is that that there there are degrees there are degrees of self forgetting and you can be right um, without completely getting rid of yourself. The, the ultimate, the ultimate, what, mark for us is trying to do what's right and completely getting ourselves, I mean, it goes to Fred's question in the last couple of weeks. Why do we do such a bad job of trying to bring law and mercy together? And my answer to that, I mean, in a simplistic way is 
trying to get rid of ourselves and any judgment we make is not an easy thing to do. We're always, we're always on the edge of mysteries, things that we don't see very well. It means we have to take real care in our judgments. I don't see it as a black and white thing. You know, Bob, there was, um, and I think this kind of may apply to what you're saying, there was a Holocaust victim, a woman who uh, helped Holocaust victims, you know, people that had been Holocaust victims. I believe she was also involved in the Holocaust Museum in Washington. And she made the statement that, that if, if she wasn't aware, if she hadn't been through what she had been through, if things would have been just a little bit different, she could have done the same things to others right. that was said to her. Right, right. I think this is, uh, what I'm hearing you say kind of points to, to that. Yep, yep, yep. Let me try to put this more starkly, if I can, and then I want to give an example to you if we can cut this short. Um, you you all you all know that I'm conservative in my politics, so I mean, so I I don't want to go there, but just just imagine. I mean, here's 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 what I think Auden's poem helps us see. Um, there are lots of people who look at Black Americans and the violence they're committing, and and are glad to see some. Let's say a Black American who commits a murder. I believe he should be put in jail. But it's one thing to put him in jail and be glad and satisfied because you say, like in Auden's poem, done the right thing. Um, a policeman puts his knee, his knee on, a, on, a, on a guy who's doing criminal activity and he's put in jail. The easiest thing to do in both of those cases is to condemn them and feel self-righteous in doing it. Both of them are murders. I mean, both of them are going to be put in jail. Can we look at both of them with any sense that we may be not seeing something about both? Do do we have we reached a point where we think I see everything there is to see about that black American, or there's everything I need to see about this cop? We so often we so often make black white judgments. It's it's only I'm only repeating what Kathy just said. Very often, the position that we take is exactly like the one we're hating. So if righteous condemn it could have been us. It to go to a cross to completely get rid of ourselves, to take to work for justice, but to bring Christ's mercy to it, in the way that we've been talking about, I think, is just a very, very hard thing. It means we have to die to ourselves completely. How well do we do that? Bob I don't want to interrupt, but I need to make a correction. It wasn't my father who died. It was my father-in-law. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And it, I mean, it doesn't matter. I, I've had that same feeling, but I didn't. Yeah. I just wanted yeah. to make sure that um, we had the right information. Yeah. I, I'm glad you said that. My great concern is some consolation for you because I, it's got to be hard for anybody to lose somebody. I just think it helps if we're with Christ um, because the hurts can go so deep and our, I, I believe our faith gives us something that the rest of the world doesn't, you know, that there are, well, and, sorry, yeah. go ahead, no, go, go ahead. I, as I said last week, I hadn't thought about it in a long time, this was a long time ago, um, 
but my father-in-law was stabbed 14 times and so the brutality of that is something that you don't forget um, after thinking about it I realized that I had justice and reparation kind of mixed up and then to get to mercy and forgiveness is going to take a while. I mean, it's not something, yeah. even though nobody else would know, yep. right. can't say, oh, right. I forgive him, and right. 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 And it's all done. But um, I appreciate the conversation because it's given me an avenue to work on. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm going to ask this question just quickly, and then I, I hope we can just take it quickly and get on to the next question. Um, we've been talking about justice and mercy and how hard it is to bring the two together. I want to just ask two, or give two examples and hear what your mind was on, okay? How, 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 you, how you all look at it. Um, a priest at, who, who um, does everything he can to reinforce the importance of mercy in our lives as Christian. In any of the parables in which Christ talks about mercy, he will his stress will be on mercy before it'll be on justice or law. In one of his sermons, he talked about the and it was like a wake-up call because the upshot of it is in his homily was to to encourage people knowing that sometimes they would have to take hard stands to just be merciful or you know say I forgive you. Easier said than done. And the two examples, and he gave them, by the way, at separate times. Nine months apart, a year apart, I don't remember. But in one of the instances in his sermon, he said, he talked with a deacon um, who had to not go to his daughter's funeral, wedding. or sorry, wedding, because the wedding was being held outside the church. It's as if she turned away from the church, and he couldn't support that because of his faith. And... And he recognized that sometimes in our ordinary situation, particularly today, because in a diversified society, people do lots of things, and most people respond to them as if it's just normal. Have an abortion, get divorced, no big deal. Um, those are the things that are supported. Mixed marriages, those are the things that are supported. So a Catholic is constantly going to find himself... Um, divided on these things, so he, he gave that. Another example once was um, he knew a couple, they, he was close to them, I think I know who he's talking about, a couple whose son was getting married to a man, and he and the wife could not go, they could not endorse that marriage. To them it would have been an act of injustice, um, would have been condoning, would have been like condoning abortion, that that here was a wrong, it was a it goes against Christ, the scripture, and so I don't know if anybody wants to try to tackle either one of those, but it seems to me that it goes to the question that we were talking about with Veer and Billy. Veer, Veer's doing something he doesn't want to do. Aeneas is doing something he want, doesn't want to do with you know Lausus. Are there times in our life when we find ourselves having to do something we didn't do? And realizing we can either hate somebody because we're being forced to do something, or we can do it in mercy. Does love and does mercy mean letting somebody off? Um, 
how do we uphold the law when um, we're asked to do something to support a law that we believe in and the world doesn't and still bring a mercy to it? Is that clear? Is that clear? Not really. Bob? Yes. Shorten your questions a little bit, Bob. You, you have a question that's about six paragraphs long. Um, Mark, have a drink. To... Have some scotch. <laughs> Who, I, who's on? Is that Linda? Who's or, or Joel? Some, I don't know who's talking. Yes, sir. That's Jolie. Jolie, go ahead. Um, I, well, I was just going to uh, ask if what you meant by that is um, to still express what you believe say to the to the son and his husband but to participate is that um is that letting mercy win and yet still feeling just or um the sure how it applies to the situation that he wanted to take a stand in by not participating at all um so is there a way to participate there um and show mercy or show compassion and and yet still express the justice of your faith here's here if i can try to i'm i'm not i'm not sure that i can meet mark's standards you already know me so but if i can try to simplify this there's so last century there were laws protecting slavery um and we believe they were contrary to god's laws Today there are laws supporting abortion. Those laws didn't exist 100 years ago. They do today. So how do, what, what, how do we take a stand when a law on the books, earthly law, is contrary to God's law? There's an, I mean, that was one example. I mean, or even in the wedding, because when a man and woman come together, and according to a Catholic, it's a sacrament. It's not just a civil marriage. And, and we know the difficulties of that have become subtler because Calvin made marriage a civic matter. It's no longer a sacrament. That means you can get divorced as easily as you want. So the deacon was, was trying to uphold the law that he believed by not participating in a law which made it okay. It's like having an abortion or, or entering into a mixed marriage. In the second instance, it was a couple, a, a father and mother, who didn't go to the marriage of their son because their son was marrying another man. That's homosexual marriage. The laws on the book, positive laws, condone that. God's laws don't. What they were doing was try to protect God's laws. I'm assuming, I don't know this, I'm assuming what they did, I'm going to make a big jump here, I'm assuming that they didn't go and made it clear to the couple, their son, that they couldn't. But they did, I'm assuming, they did everything their they could to let their son know that they would continue to love him. How, how that works out, I don't know. What I'm trying to present are concrete instances where um, there, there's a law of God that we're trying to uphold, and as Christians, because we believe it, it means we can't do some things, or we have to do some things that the secular world is not going to like. How do we do those things and still bring a mercy um, when we have to learn to overcome ourselves in either instance while we're still upholding a law. If we do away with the law, because remember, St. Thomas, the church says, 
Mercy without a law is insane. It's a disaster. A mercy grows out of a law. It's what we bring to it. The answer to those difficulties is not doing away with the law. It's upholding the law, but bringing a love to it, you know, that, that asks that we give up ourselves. Um, we can't do away with the law. We can't undermine God's law. Um, the Protestant wants to do away with it. it. I mean, here's the Protestant position. I'm saying this really seriously. The Protestant takes this position. This is, this is broadly. God's love supersedes the law. It does away with it. Christ said, I mean, here's Christ. He did everything he could to fulfill the law right up to the last instant. He, did, he never undermined it. He, right, I mean, right in the middle of his crucifixion. He's fulfilling the law, but he's doing it in love. And the cost of it is his death. How do we br- our, our discussion for the last two weeks is how do we bring justice and mercy together? Particularly in our world when so many of the laws that are in the books go against God's law. How do we stand on God's law and still bring a mercy to what we do? That's been our question for two weeks. I think it's, a, you know, we left Billy Budd sort of wrestling with that question, but it's one we can, we can take back into 75% of our readings. Nikki. Yeah, I'm really struggling with this. And in your example, part of me thinks that, you know, where does this argument roll over into judgment instead of mercy and justice? Can you can you have ju- can you have justice without a judgment? I mean, if you're talking about being judgmental, I'm not sure if that's what you mean, but I don't know how you can have a justice without making it a judgment. Christ, Christ makes a judgment. Wait, second coming? The parousia? The Lord will come in judgment and power. Christ is really declaring that. He's, he's going he's gonna to be settling things, <laughs> one side or the other. I'm not, so I'm not sure what you mean by judgment, but can anybody make a judgment concerning a justice without making a judgment? The, the, one of the questions for me is, can you do that without being judgmental and, you know, in the sense in which we talk about that word? Right. But, you know, I mean, we don't know everything. So no. where is it okay? How is it okay for us to make that judgment? Well, one of the, I mean, this is really, I feel like, I feel like a, one of those radio hosts. I wish we were in a classroom together. Here, here, here's this great thing. I mean, here's the, here's the great thing. This, and it's stunning to our faith. I, and I'm saying, I want to be, I, I hope you know that I don't take this stuff casually, any of it. Because I've had to make judgments and we've had to make judgments in our life that have been really, really painful. So here's Christ on that day because we talked about it when we did the Catholic Protestant thing. It blew me over when we read that passage from Peter. Remember, Christ says, who do people say I am? The disciples can answer and he says to the disciples, who do you say I am? They cannot answer. Turns to Peter and says, who do you say I am? He says, you're the Christ. He says, on this rock, give you the keys. And he said, we've talked about this because it's stunning to me, stunning to me. He says, um, I, I can't remember his words, but he says, you have the power to bind and loose. That's right. So the authority given the church 
He's an, and now wait, and I, and I take the Pope, the bishops, I mean there's a hierarchy that I believe, it's there in Christ, what he did with them. But part of what he's doing is saying to the church, we've talked about this, without that authority, how do you fight evil in the world? Within your church, outside. Because he knew the attacks against the church wouldn't just come from outside, it would be from the inside. How, how did the Pope get the authority to say to a bishop who was molesting kids, you're defrocked, make that judgment? And if we, if, we are called to, if we are called to be priests, prophets, kings, how can we do that if we don't stand with the Pope, with Christ, in everything we do? What I, I mean, what I've been trying to do in most of these talks is trying to nuance them. The black-white tendency in us has got to be answered. If, if we ever get to a point where we think we see everything, then I think we're being stupid. But, but we can't let the difficulty keep us from making decisions. We do the best we can. You know, to, to be just, um, we try to do the very best we can. And we suffer when we have to make hard decisions. We can't escape them. Yeah. But, but the, the, ultimately, the source of that is Christ when he said, who you bind, who you loose. We've got to deal with evil every day of our life. The church calls it the church militant. We're in a battle. We're in a war. We cannot pass that off. And we cannot be self-righteous or legalistic or, you know, if we don't go into it with a better spirit, we're in trouble. My, that's, that's my judgment. Mm -hmm. But we well, can't, think, can't avoid that. I think parents were judging. I think those parents who wouldn't go to their son's wedding, I think they were judging and judgmental. And they may not approve. God doesn't say we have to approve of everything our children do. But we do love and accept our children and for that reason their presence there is not condoning if they don't condone uh, his marriage to a man then they don't but i am there because you are my child i gave birth to you and i love you and i accept you but i do not approve of your lifestyle yeah. they could still show up and witness a marriage god forbid one was catholic and one protestant i guess that'd make it even worse to them uh, I guess. And when you mentioned Protestants alone, I do wonder why did you say Protestants think we're corrupted? I never met a Protestant who thought I was corrupted. Well, that's the basic. Wait, there's two. Let me take the first one on, Linda, just to give me a second. The, 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 the question that your original position raises is um, you, the way you presented it is as if love was separate from justice. When the when the wait 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 the 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 question we've been struggling with for the last couple of weeks is how do we how do we reconcile the two to bring the two so and 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 it seemed to me just saying love them is is not dealing with the other one but let me take up the second because it goes to it all of the all the Protestant divines the majors we 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 saw that when we went through it Wycliffe um, Huss Luther, Calvin, all of them, all of them maintained that um, the consequences of our fall were complete. Wait, let me, because this goes to your question directly. 
all of them maintained that the consequences of the fall were complete, that we were left inherently depraved, that we're corrupt. That's the position. And it, it's partly on the, I, that's, I mean, there's a long theological discussion in that, but it was on the basis of that that they go to this th notion that love supersedes it and has no natural law. So natural law is taken away. So the only way you deal with it is to love at the expense of law. The position that I've been trying to at least ask everybody to look at more seriously is, as Catholics, we're asked not to do that. That's a Protestant position. The Protestants say love supersedes it. It circumvents it. It goes around it. A Catholic has got a different kind of a burden. We don't believe, we do not believe we were wounded or um, depraved, made depraved. We this is a Catholic position. We believe we were wounded but we're still grounded in nature. There's an inherent goodness in us to, to take the position that you love, no matter what your kids do, is to run contrary to that notion that we've got to bring faith and reason, justice and law together. Justice that when you do one at the expense of the other, there are going to be problems. They're going to be serious. Sorry, wait, Doc's got a, Doc's got a comment. No, I was just correcting you. You said judgment, judgment and law together. Judgment and mercy. Justice. justice and mercy. So all of the Protestants believe that, Linda. The, the Catholic position has always been very, very different. And I, I hope everybody sees the difference. If you say you love them no matter what, that means you're not bound to the law. You can, you know, you can dismiss it. The Catholic can't. What the parents were doing were, was to struggle with exactly that call that they had to do justice and the way they did it was not going to the marriage is, is showing that they can't they can't make that concession and still love them it doesn't mean they don't love them it means they're saying to the kids you can't do that because it's against the law that's the problem we've been talking about for two weeks and the protestant the protestant faith divides down so anglicans episcopalians don't believe we're corrupt um they didn't start from from Luther and Calvin. And a lot of people who are Lutheran today probably would not say that. They would just, they've, they've grown away from that belief. But that's where it started. And I would, and I would say it's the, the I mean, I, I think Doc is right, that it's really funny. We, we met with a, a realtor years ago and we were looking for a home who was Presbyterian. And I asked him about Calvin's belief in predestination. He didn't want to talk about it. Most of the people who are Protestant today cannot trace their roots back. And yet, it's inherent in everything they do. Turning away from the sacraments, um, living in this, this schism that I'm talking about between justice and mercy. To I mean, what they do is constantly undermine, constantly undermine, because they're not bound to a law. They're going to say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but... Can you love a, well, here's the other thing. Can you love somebody without being just? Can you love somebody without being truthful? Can a love be truly Christ's love without his law, Christ's law, the Father's law? Christ didn't break a law. He fulfilled it. And we saw the cost of that was a crucifixion. There was nothing Christ did that went against his Father's law. He himself said he fulfilled it. Every iota. We're to understand that going through the cross from beginning to end was completing an injustice against his father. 
So the, one of the divisions of the modern world, and we've been talking about this for a long, long time, one of, the, one of the problems we have is learning to order our loves because our loves are so often disordered. How do we make our, law, our loves lawful to bring them in accord with Christ and his law? We romanticize love like it's everything. That's what the Protestant does. We um, Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, can I share a story? It's it's personal. Sure. It's up to I don't you. know if it's if it is uh, pertinent or not. But when I got married um, as a young woman, I married a non-Catholic in the church. You know, um, the priest. We were married by a priest, but my grandfather would not come. My grandmother and grandfather Hanik would not come, even though it was in the church. Now, when this happened. I mean, I expected it. I, I you know, understood it. Uh, he had a daughter who married a non-Catholic in the church. And it was in the rectory. It was a long time ago. I mean, he didn't go to that either. But when this happened in my life, you know, I, I didn't take offense. I mean, I respected where he was. I, you know, I knew way before I got married where he was. They sent a gift, and all through our married life, I mean, we were welcome in their home. We were loved. Um, you know, it's it. it it's, I I never expected him to whatever his conscience was in the matter. I mean, I realized if he didn't put his daughters, he most certainly wasn't coming to mine. But I, it never occurred to me to ask him to breach whatever his conscience was. And as I said, we went on. I always felt loved by him, and my husband was always treated with respect. Um, so I don't know if this is justice and mercy, but it certainly is, you know, it was an experience in my life that it was a teaching experience. And um, I mean, I felt respected, and I felt I respected him. Yeah. Let me, we've got a, we're, we're just about out of time. Let me it just, if I can, um, say this about what we're talking about. Um, we've been struggling over this question. It was one of the fundamental ones that Fred asked, and it was clearly a pointed one. It, the, the way he framed it was, why do we do so badly at it? You know, um, I don't want to make judgments on any of our examples or personal things, but um, just to acknowledge, if we look at what we're talking about in any of these instances, I hope it's clear by now, or is if it wasn't before, how hard this issue is, how difficult it is, that for any of us to enter into it at any level takes us into a mystery in some. You know, I mean, we're on the, we're on the edge of a crucifixion. Um, there is a fundamental difference between a Protestant and a Catholic on the way we look at these two. And by the way, they just need to be kept together. We're asked to keep faith and reason together. The Protestant doesn't do that. Um, the Protestant says man's corrupt, reason's corrupt. The only thing that can help us is grace. That was, that was there in Moby Dick. It was there in um, Scarlet Letter. We've seen it. We can see the division in some sense in Dostoevsky, Brothers Karamazov. Um, we're, we're asked, the Pope John Paul's, one of his central encyclicals was Fide Ratio. If you read that book, you can see it as an appeal to us 
to struggle to bring those two things together. When Ratzinger made his visit in Germany at um, Regensburg, his, he expressed his, and he, he, he did not condemn, neither of these men are condemning, they're presenting a problem, it's a serious, serious problem. Um, Ratzinger's concern was that the fundamentalists in, in the West, Protestant fundamentalists, and the Islamic fundamentalists are together in one respect. Neither one of those fundamentalist groups acknowledge a logos. It's, it's um, Marcy's great term. The logos has been present with us from the Greek world, the Iliad, the Odyssey. There was this logos in the universe, this reason, this order to things. That um, Ratzinger's concern was the, the harm that was entering the modern world because two of its greatest groups in size, the fundamentalist Islam and the fundamentalist Christian, deny a logos. So there's no appeal to reason. When you, if you get into a discussion with anybody holding that faith, it will be faith, love, justice. You know, and the Islam is going to press that hard. So, so will the fundamentalists. The fundamentalists are going to say, "My faith in God." But there's no recourse to reason or the rational tradition. It's gone. We saw that even in Dostoevsky and some. So, one of the great problems we face in the modern world is this schism between faith and reason. You can also see that in terms of justice and love, because justice is an, is an appeal to the use of reason in the natural order. We are called to a law. One of the reasons for the lawlessness in our culture today, you could say, is we've lost a sense of justice, truly. People, people can do whatever they want because they've got this dream or reason for justifying, justifying killing, murder. We've lost a sense of justice in our world. Um, the Catholic, in a sense, is, I mean, that's why so many people are outraged at Kavanaugh and Amy Barrett, because they're both Catholics. Most people know that they're going to oppose abortion, and so, I mean, that that's not their initial stand. They're Catholics. They're not going to trust them. But the way they use reason will be different. Both of those judges will be, ground, no matter what decision they make, it will be grounded in natural law. It'll be the law tradition. That'll be the framework, the Constitution, which is a document of law. That'll be the framework for everything they do. Um, we've lost a sense of the importance of reason in the natural order and the laws that we make. So many of the laws that we make are not in accord with what I, what I started out the program with, our, our hour. The justice that's framed today is in terms of the majority. Whatever, what, what, this is Plato's argument. The justice is whatever those in power decide it to be. That's a man-made notion of justice. Those who are in power can create their own laws. Plain was argued, this is 2,000 years ago, he was saying, no, that's not so. That's a basis for tyranny. There is an order to things, there's an order to the soul, there's an order to God's universe. We have to learn, learn to see what it is and come to it. Well, so, 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 we, so we struggle to bring faith and reason, love and justice, together. That's a hard, hard, I hope it's clear, that's a hard, hard struggle. I'm sorry, somebody was saying something. Yes, me, Bob. The, my only aspect of this is, is very simply, if you were going to review justice and mercy as two separate entities, then the question I would ask is which is the greater of these? And I think that 
if you can answer that question, I think you will come up with a very um, interesting <laughs> set of solutions or, or concerns. If you're going to if you're going to view them as separate entities, as mercy and justice as separate, which is the greater? Yeah, the difficulty the difficulty with that, Bob, at least. I mean, in what we've been doing, if, if our reference point is literature, and this literature tradition and the philosophic tradition goes with it, is that we cannot treat those as separate. I mean, the whole force of what I've been doing and what I've been doing, I hope it's clear, is not just a personal opinion of mine. It's, it's all these writers. Um, yeah. no, wait, let me just try to finish. The, you, they're not separate. They're not. They're not. They're, the, they're not separate. Hold on. Aquinas, I've tried to make that clear with St. Thomas. If you have mercy apart from justice, it's a disaster. People who want to be merciful without it. If you look at every Shakespeare play we've read, if you look at Dante, who's the center of our church, there's no way to separate them. They're not separable. It would be truer to, to give this analogy. Mercy is the bloom on a flower, a stalk. It's the fruit of it. Lots of people stop with a stalk. Mercy is completing it. Mercy doesn't exist. They're not two separate entities. Mercy only comes into existence as the fruition of a law based in God. The first two commitments of God, first two commandments, were love your God more than anything. Love your neighbor as yourself. That was from God, Yahweh. There's justice then. Well, that's what I meant. So I tried to start the, the thing. But right now I want to try to answer your, the, your you know, the, one of the things that we've learned from all the literature, particularly from from the very great Homer through Dante, Chaucer, Shakespeare, um, that if you look at that tradition, they're not separate. Mercy is an outgrowth, a bloom, a super addition of something from God to fulfill mercy. If you separate them, you're in trouble. Because nobody, either, either you're going to end up pushing, going back to the Jewish world, law, or you're going to a romanticized world of Christianity. That's what Portia dealt with in the courtroom. Because the, we saw this. The Jews wanted, Shylock wanted, my law. The Christians said, let him off. And we saw what the consequences would be of either one of those. If you read every one of Shakespeare's plays, if you read Dante, if you read these, the philosophers, if you read St. Thomas, St. Thomas is the center of the church. You will, you will not find that. The great chore of the church in Christ was to fulfill the law in mercy. Well, the, the the question then is, which came first? <laughs> we already know which came first. And we also, we also know from Christ what came afterwards, which asked something much harder of us and complicated it. Okay, I'm going to call it a close because we're past time. All right. I, what I'd like to do is, um, I, I don't want to go to the reading yet, but I just would like everybody to know, because it actually has to do with this. I'd, next week I'd like to continue with this, but I'd like to take up the question on self-reflection that's in, included in that group. And the week after that we'll go back to the literature. When we go back to the literature, we'll start with Aeschylus. We'll do Aeschylus and Sophocles. And after Aeschylus and Sophocles, instead of going to Shakespeare, which is what I planned, what I'd like to do is take up C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man in which he talks about these issues to see what C.S. Lewis says about this issue. And Bob, if any, could you or, or Suzanne send us 
in an email. I have not gotten an email showing the, the versions and the, the things that you want and what you think you want oh. to sequence. Could we get an email instead of in the... Sure. Okay. Did, did the rest of you get... I thought I sent a list down. Sue, are you getting you emails from me? The, you may have put it on the blog, but I didn't get an email. I got it. I got it. I did too. Okay. I did not. I did get an email. Sue, do me a favor, would you? Sue, send me your email to make sure we have the correct email address. Okay. Okay? But I'll send another note. I'll send another note out to everybody. Next week, we're coming back for a discussion. We're going to continue this because it's obviously difficult. And then we will... Uh, we're we'll not doing justice and mercy. No, we're not doing justice and mercy. We're going to do the one on reflection, on, on literature as, 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 as helping us to see... To enter into other people while distancing ourselves, that question. And then we will um, we will do Aeschylus. But, Nikki, go ahead. I was just wondering if anybody found um, the Lattimore translation. The which one? The Lattimore University of Chicago Press. Yes, uh, Marcy found it, the very last one, and is, we're get. I should be getting it <laughs> this week. It was they they told them it was the very last one, and they weren't going to replace it. Right? Oh, okay. is it available on Kindle? I don't. I don't. Know. Listen, she, she get the, get the Barnes get, and Noble, and and I you know get whatever is available. Nikki, get whatever is available because we'll you 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 it's it's they're short works. If you can get the Lattimore, get it. But if you can't. Get whatever is, you know, available, easy. She got, she, she got, she got the the uh, the other one, and it's was half as much as the the latter book. But uh, I guess her information was is her pursuit because she went looking for other at other locations other than Amazon. If I were you, I'd tell Marcy, put the Lattimore online and black market it. Because you could awfully get, I mean, you could blackmail everybody in this class right now and get a fortune for it. Exactly my intent, Bob. <laughs> That's unjust. Yeah, just, some sense of justice we have, Robert. <laughs> All right. Okay, you guys, we're gonna we're gonna stay with Auden's poem, the Horae Canonicae, the the um, canonical hours. We'll pick up the other question that you know that is in that um, list of questions. One more week and then we will we will go back to the Greek world and look at our beginnings again. Boy, I hope you guys have the same feeling that I have that working with justice and mercy is not an easy thing. Not an easy thing. There is one out. Okay, you guys have a good week. You too. Thank you. See you later. Thank you, thank you. All right. Boy.